So our scripture reading today is from Matthew chapter 19, verses 1 through 6. And this can be found on page 824 in the Pew Bible. And if you don't own a Bible and would like one, please go ahead and take the one right there in your pew as a gift from us. We would love for you to have a copy of God's Word. Now when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let man not separate. This is the word of God. Community's Brookside Campus. My name is Bill Gorman. I'm the campus pastor here at uh, at our Brookside Campus, and I'm really delighted that you're here this morning. Thanks for coming uh, and coming out in the rain. Like Aaron mentioned, we'll be meeting downstairs in the lower level for lunch on the lawn. Um, after this, um, we're really grateful for the rain. Um, as we do each week here um, at Christ Community, we'll open our time in looking at God's Word by just praying and asking for God to help us. Um, he's the one who's spoken to us in His Word, and we want to ask for His help to understand it, to apply it in our lives. And so let's begin by doing that now. Father in heaven, we are thankful that you have given us uh, your Word, that you speak into our lives. And we pray that as we hear it this morning, that you give us ears to hear, um, that we would experience um, both the goodness of your design as well as the hope and the healing and the forgiveness and the mercy that you offer in the midst of a world that um, has gone so wrongly uh, bad from the way that you intended. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Jesus uh, has done it again um, this week. If you've been with us in the Gospel of Matthew, we've been in this book for a while now, and somehow Jesus always manages to take us right into the uncomfortable and often painful areas of life, uh, doesn't he? Um, and, and at this point in the story, I would think 19 chapters into Matthew, we'd sort of begin to expect this to happen week after week, um, but it always can catch us off guard a little bit. Um, doesn't, doesn't make it any easier when Jesus goes to these places uh, for the fact that he's been going to them for a while now. And, and this week is no exception as Jesus dives into divorce and marriage and, and even later we're going to see singleness uh, in this passage. And Jesus speaks to all of those things this morning. And we know, don't we? We, we know that these areas, they're, they're so ripe. They're so ripe with pain, uh, with hurt, with disappointment, with frustration, with dreams that have been left unfulfilled or dreams that have come crashing down. And as I was preparing this week, I, I thought of many of your stories this morning. Many, many of your stories, stories of, of marriages that, that have ended years ago even. But the, the pain, the scars of that just still so real. Stories of marriages that have recently crumbled and, and you're just 
you're reeling, you're still trying to figure out, pick up the pieces, figure out what's next for you. Stories of, of marriages that are teetering on the precipice of divorce. And you don't, you don't know day to day whether or not things are going to last, whether it's going to keep going. Maybe you woke up this morning and, and you don't know if you're going to be married still tomorrow. Stories of longing to be married, but not having found a spouse. Stories of, of, of learning that your, your parents, after years of marriage, are getting a divorce. These and so many other stories are present in this room this morning and, and each week as we gather. And, and so often they're below the waterline and, and we smile and but there's such deep pain and hurt. In fact, I would suspect it would be nearly impossible to find anyone, someone here this morning who hasn't in some way been touched deeply by a messy marriage or by a divorce. It touches us all. But I want to say to you this morning, the good news is that Jesus offers hope. Hope for every single one of those stories. And no matter how bad it has gotten, no matter how messed up it was, no matter what regrets you have for what happened in the past, for what fears you have for today, no matter how lonely or alone you might feel this morning, there is hope in Jesus. Because that's what the gospel is about. It's, it's hope for people who, who are hopeless. It's what we've seen over and over again as we've been journeying through the gospel of Matthew. And in the Gospel of Matthew, it's, it's a theological biography of Jesus written by one of his closest followers, by Matthew. And he's an eyewitness to these things. Matthew watched. He sat on the edge and, and looked as Jesus gave these teachings and experienced so much. And Jesus is showing us in Matthew what the truly good life looks like. And here in this section in particular that we entered last week in Matthew chapter 18, Jesus is showing what it looks like to follow him as king. He taught us to pray in the Sermon on the Mount that, Lord, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And in this section, he's showing us what does it look like to live as though his kingdom has come, to begin to follow him as our king. Last week, we looked at forgiveness. And this week, in the very next verse, Jesus gets this question about divorce. It's not accidental that Matthew has placed Jesus' teaching about divorce and marriage and divorce, or his teaching about marriage and divorce right after, immediately after, he teaches on forgiveness. Because there's, there's few situations, few circumstances where costly, sacrificial, repetitious forgiveness are needed than here. But it isn't actually Jesus who brings up the topic of divorce or marriage. It comes as a response to a question that the religious leaders put to him in an effort to, to trick him, to trap him, the text says, into saying something unpopular or controversial. It wasn't any easier to talk about divorce in the first century than it is in the 21st. And Jesus' response to this question teaches us that when it comes to divorce, when it comes to marriage, when it comes to singleness— that we have to know what we're getting into. You have to know what you're getting into. 
And this morning, Jesus' teaching comes in response to, to three questions that are put to him. And before we dive into those questions, or as we're beginning to dive into those questions, let me just say here this morning a couple of things. First of all, you're going to have way more questions than we're going to be able to answer this morning in this message. And that's okay, but I just want to prepare you to be disappointed by that right now, up at the front. There's going to be way more questions because every story is unique. Every circumstance is unique. So there's going to be way more questions than in the course of one message we're going to be able to answer. Marriage, divorce, remarriage, singleness, there's so much here. And in, and in fact, most contemporary lectionaries, and lectionaries are these plans for reading Scripture publicly in church services, they actually skip over this passage. They don't even include it. They say, well, let's not read that on Sunday morning. And yet, as we take the Bible seriously here at Christ's Community, we want to hear that all God has to say to us in His Word, even in the places where it's painful and difficult and maybe confusing. So while we might not answer your question this morning, I, along with any of your other pastors, would love to process with you any questions you have. We're here to listen, to grieve with you, to help. And again, no matter where you are this morning, There's hope. There's always hope in the gospel. Like I said, all this begins with a question. A question from the Pharisees, the conservative religious elite of the time. A question designed to trap Jesus. Look at verse 1. Now when Jesus had finished saying these things about forgiveness, that's what he had just been talking, when he was finished saying these things about forgiveness, he went away from Galilee and he'd entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And the Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? This is how the text begins. So Jesus is drawing closer and closer to Jerusalem. And Matthew tells us that after he'd finished teaching on forgiveness, he travels away from Galilee. So he'd spent a lot of his ministry up near the top of that map, in the region of Galilee. That's where Nazareth was. That's where he grew up. But he's beginning to work his way south toward Jerusalem in the region of Judea. And he's just on the other side of the Jordan River, um, coming closer and closer to Jerusalem, where he will eventually be arrested and crucified And it's just on the other side of the Jordan River there where he's asked this question, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Now, to understand this question and why it would have been a test or a trap for Jesus, we need to understand a couple of things about Jesus' time, about his culture. And first of all, that divorce has has always been a problem. We have to understand that. Divorce has always been a problem. Sometimes we get the impression that divorce is a problem today in a way that it never was in the past. And that just, it simply isn't true. Divorce was just as much of a problem in the ancient world, in the Roman Empire, in Jewish culture, in the ancient Near East as it was, as it is for us today. But there was one major difference, and that was in the ancient Near East, in the culture that Jesus was living in, only a man could initiate the divorce. Only a husband could initiate the divorce, which is why the question is framed in the way it is. Can a man divorce his wife for any reason? Second, we have to understand that there were two schools of thought in Jewish interpretation of Scripture at this time about when it was allowable to get a divorce. One school of Jewish interpretation at the time of Jesus 
said that you could only get a divorce in extremely rare circumstances. The other school of interpretation said that there were any number of grounds for getting divorced. It was pretty much any reason the man wanted to get divorced, he could. We actually have records of texts where it says, you know, if basically if your wife uh, burns your dinner, you can send her away, give her a divorce. If she just is no longer attractive to you anymore, you find someone else you think is more beautiful, you can get a divorce. So these two camps of interpretation, one that was wide open, you could get divorced for just about any reason at all, why they use that language, any reason here in the text, or this only rare occasion, so they want to know, Jesus, which is it? And so often is the case, Jesus refuses to answer the question asked, and he gives an entirely different answer altogether. This is classic Jesus. He doesn't just answer the question they want. He basically turns the question back on them and takes it in a different direction. Jesus' response is that marriage is designed to last, and that divorce isn't a part of that design. Eugene Peterson in the message captures Jesus' answer so well, he paraphrases it this way. He says, Jesus answered the Pharisees, saying, haven't you read your Bible, that the Creator originally made man and woman for each other, male and female? And because of this, a man leaves father and mother and is firmly bonded to his wife, becoming one flesh, no longer two bodies, but one. Because God created this organic union of the two sexes, no one should desecrate his art by cutting them apart. You see, rather than enter into a debate about exceptions and special cases, when, put this, when this question is put to Jesus, he points the Pharisees back to God's design. And marriage in God's design is meant to last, meant to last a lifetime. And, and divorce isn't a part of the original design. It isn't part of what ought to be. And in pointing back to Genesis, Jesus affirms that marriage is more than merely a social construction or, or a human institution that can be defined or, and redefined by human beings. So when asked about marriage, Jesus says, simply look at Genesis. Marriage is designed and defined by God. And in God's design, marriage takes two different sexes, two different genders, male and female, and makes them one, unites them. And that this oneness, that unity is to be expressed in every facet of who we are as human beings, economically, legally, personally, psychologically, physically. Which, uh, as an aside, is, is why Christians view premarital sex, or indeed all sex outside of marriage, as a vandalization of God's good design. Pastor Tim Keller explains it this way. He says, sex outside of marriage is wrong because every sex act is supposed to reflect an absolute and complete covenant unity. There must be no physical union unless there is also every other kind, a legal, economic, personal, emotional, and spiritual union. There must not be one unity without all the rest. And when you begin to bring in those other categories, it kind of starts to make a little bit of sense, right? Because which one of us would, would go up to someone at the bar and say, hmm, what if we merged our checking accounts tonight? <laughs> I mean, I don't want any other commitment. I wanted to see how our money mingles together. <laughs> we, we wouldn't do that, right? Marriage is supposed to be a complete whole life, unity, every facet together. And you can't just sort of pull one piece out and say, well, let's, let's try this over here without all the rest. Complete unity in, every, unity in every facet of life. 
complete union in God's design that is to be separated only by death. In other words, in God's design for marriage, as it ought to be, in a world without sin and brokenness, there, there is no exit strategy. There is no loophole. There is no way out in His design. That's the way it's supposed to be. That's the way it ought to be. We know we don't live in that place anymore. We don't live in Genesis 1 and 2. We don't live in creation in the Garden of Eden any longer. But that's what it's supposed to be in the design. This means you need to know what you're getting into in marriage. There's a lot we could say here, but marriage is bigger than you. That's the first thing you need to know when you get into it. Marriage is bigger than you. When you get into marriage, when you join yourself to another person in marriage, you become a living picture of God's relationship with His people. You see, all throughout the Bible, from the Old Testament all the way through to the New Testament, one of the most consistent images that God uses to talk about His relationship to His people is the, is the marriage relationship. Marriage is to be a picture to the world of how God loves and cares for and sacrifices and serves His people for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, in sickness and in health. You see, it's not as though God created marriage and then thought later on, huh, actually, this would be a great picture of how I want to relate to my people. No, right right from the very beginning, one of the reasons that He's created marriage in the first place is to order to give us a picture of how He relates to us. This is his intention from the beginning. It's why he made marriage in the first place, to be a picture, to tell a story. So if you're married this morning, what story is your marriage telling? What what picture is it painting to the world? Marriage is a covenant relationship, but our tendency today, as well as in Jesus' time for that matter, is to treat marriage much more like a consumer relationship. Marriage, it's a covenant relationship, but our tendency is to treat it like a consumer relationship. And consumer relationships uh, are relationships in which my needs are more important than the relationship. So I have a, a consumer relationship with my cell phone carrier. My needs are more important than the relationship. I don't have any sort of fundamental loyalty to a particular cell phone company. If, if another company is going to offer me the same service at a better price, I'll switch, Right? We have lots of consumer relationships, and they're good. There's nothing inherently wrong with consumer relationships. But when we start treating relationships that ought to be covenant relationships like consumer relationships, that's when we begin to have a problem. You see, a consumer relationship is one where my needs are more important than the relationship. But in a covenant relationship, the relationship itself is actually more important than the needs of the individuals. We say this thing that's been created here by this covenant is more important in any given moment than my particular needs and wants. That's what a covenant relationship is. Now, for all of us, and myself included in this, the idea of, of anything being more important than my needs can sound a bit blasphemous in an individualistic and consumer-driven culture where we're constantly told that, that our needs are the most important things. But that's what the marriage relationship, the marriage covenant is designed to be, what it ought to be. But again, as we're all painfully aware, all is not as it ought to be. 
Far from it, in fact, which leads to the second question put to Jesus in this passage. Because Jesus' answer to the question, can you get a divorce for any reason, is basically, he says, well, no. What did, what did God say in the beginning? What was his design in the beginning? And then the Pharisees come back with this question in verse 7. Then they said to him, well, why then, Jesus, did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? And this is the moment where the Pharisees, they think they have Jesus cornered. They said, Jesus, in response to our question, you said, go back to the law. Look at God's design in the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. But what about Moses' teaching in Deuteronomy 24, Jesus? That's also part of the law, part of the Torah. What about that? They're trying to get him to contradict Moses. And again, Eugene Peterson in the message perfectly captures Jesus' response. Jesus said, Moses provided for divorce as a concession to your hardness, but, not a part, but it is not a part of God's original plan. I'm holding you to the original plan and holding you liable for adultery if you divorce your faithful wife and then marry someone else. I make an exception in cases where the spouse has committed adultery. See, divorce exists, Jesus says, because marriage is a mess. Even the best marriages are a mess, right? Marriage is a mess. In Deuteronomy 24, Moses made a provision for people to be divorced, but he never commanded divorce. And this is where the Pharisees, they, they've become very subtle in their wording, but they almost make it sound as though Moses commanded people in these circumstances to get divorced. He didn't. He made a provision based on their hardness of heart that allowed for divorce, but he never commanded divorce. He allowed for it, but he didn't require it. But what he did require, what Moses did command, was that when a divorce did occur, that a certificate of divorce be given. Why? Why is that so important? Why is there a law in Deuteronomy that says a certificate, of, a, a documentation of the divorce must be given? We see, in Deuteronomy 24, Moses is given an allowance to protect the most vulnerable people. And in that context of a patriarchal society, Women and children were by far the most vulnerable. They still are today, but much, much more so. So Moses is giving this allowance to protect the vulnerable, not to free those who are in power from responsibility. Because in a patriarchal society where women were very vulnerable, where they were often seen as nothing more than property, if a woman was divorced without a certificate to show that she really was divorced, that her husband had actually sent her away, and then she went and married someone else, which was really her only place of security, her only recourse in her traditional culture if she was divorced, was to find someone else who she could marry to care for her and provide for her. Then the community would think that she was committing adultery, which is a crime punishable by death. So what Moses is saying is if you got a divorce, not that you have to, but if you do, ensure that your ex-wife won't be wrongly accused of adultery. Make sure you give her documentation of this if you're going to send her away. But that's not all. Moses was also protecting women against the whims of casual divorce as well. See, if a man was tired of his wife one day and chose to divorce her, and then she marries some other guy after that sometime, then the guy she marries dies, the first guy couldn't marry her again. The law also says that. You can't just pass this vulnerable woman back and forth like a piece of property. This dehumanizing behavior, which was all too common in the ancient Near East, the sin ignores God's intention for marriage and is instead driven by a hard, self-centered heart. Those laws in Deuteronomy were meant to protect women from that kind of dehumanization. 
And it's ironic that the text intended to protect women from being casually divorced is now being used to find permission to casually pursue divorce and put women in a vulnerable position again. Marriage is a mess. It's a mess in every culture at every time. And yes, God does permit, and he doesn't command, but he does permit divorce in some cases. And this is where Jesus says, and I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual morality and marries another commits adultery. That term sexual morality has is a broad term. It highlights something that's been deeply broken, that's already been undone in that intimacy of that one flesh union. And this term, again, it's broad. It includes really kind of three categories as you look at Scripture of, of possible grounds for divorce, of adultery, um, abuse, abandonment. These immoral actions fracture the two made one in the most intimate of ways and breaks the promise, the covenant that they've made to each other. So here's what Jesus is saying. If your spouse does commit immorality, if that falls into those categories of things, he isn't saying you have to divorce them. You don't, you're not commanded to divorce them. You're allowed to. But you don't have to, because in the gospel, the deepest wounds can still have the possibility of being remedied if both are willing. What has been undone can be chosen to be redone through the strength of the gospel. And we should exhaust every opportunity and be on to pursue reconciliation. We worship Jesus who was resurrected on the third day, and he can bring to life a marriage that died years ago if both are willing. So Jesus is saying that other, for the reason of immorality, those categories mentioned earlier, if you divorce your spouse and marry another, you start off that new marriage through an act of adultery. Not that that continues to be an adulterous relationship, but it begins that way. So yes, marriage is a mess. It is. But know what you're getting into in divorce. Marriage is a mess, but know what you're getting into in divorce. Because divorce is always destructive, even in, in those rare cases where there are biblically allowed grounds for it, it's always destructive. I mean, in essence, asking Jesus saying, in essence, what Jesus is saying in this text is, is asking, when can I get a divorce? is like asking your doctor, when's it okay to get my arm amputated? I mean, sure, there may be situations because we live in a sinful, broken world where you're in an accident or you get some horrible disease and amputating your arm might be an option or maybe even the best of the bad choices available to you. But your doctor is going to do everything she possibly can to save your arm because amputation, it's always destructive even even if it is the only option or if it becomes inevitable. The negative effects of divorce on children, the economic future of the family, society at large, well documented. I know many of you are, are living those. You're feeling those firsthand. But in 2002, researchers also found that the divorce doesn't even make those who sought the divorce happy. The study titled simply, Does Divorce Make People Happy? Findings from a study of unhappy marriages, this is what they report. Unhappily married adults who divorced or separated were no happier on average than unhappily married adults who stayed married. Even unhappy spouses who had divorced and remarried were no happier on average than unhappy spouses who stayed married. 
And this was true even after controlling for race, age, gender, and income. So if this morning you're looking longingly at divorce, seeing it as a way of escape from a miserable marriage, and I know, I know how miserable some of you are. Just know that the grass only looks greener. Don't ever mistake God's provision because of hardness of heart with the goodness of his original design. Know what you're getting into in divorce. Now, if you think that Jesus' teaching on marriage and divorce are challenging, maybe even shocking to us today, they they were just as shocking to those who were listening in, in the first century. Shocking to the point that even Jesus' disciples who have been listening to this conversation, they, now they kind of pull Jesus inside and basically say, Jesus, you can't be serious. Like, can you? Because the disciples listening on, I mean, they're in this first century context. They lived in a world where, one, marriage was everything. It was far more important than your identity and your career or whatever. Marriage was, it was everything. And also in a, in a cultural context where marriage was arranged, not chosen. So, so the thought of this, Jesus kind of taking away these grounds for divorce was, was terrifying. They had no idea what they were getting into in marriage. And so what do they say? They say, if this is the case of a man with his wife, then it's better not to get married, Jesus. If, this, if you're going to make it this hard for us to get out of it, maybe it's just better not to get married at all. And the implicit question here is, Jesus, if this is the standard for marriage, then how can marriage be worth it? Duke University New Testament scholar Richard Hayes explains kind of the context of this. He says, for a man to surrender the option of divorce was a startling renunciation of rights within Matthew's patriarchal cultural context. And thus Matthew places the renunciation of divorce alongside the renunciation of anger, alongside turning the other cheek, even alongside love of enemy as a sign of the character of God's kingdom. This is shocking stuff. This is just as shocking as stuff that was happening in the Sermon on the Mount. Like the other examples in this inventory, the relinquishment of divorce may entail suffering. You see, just like in the Sermon on the Mount with anger and lust, Jesus raises the bar so high that it seems impossible. And it is impossible apart from the cross, apart from the forgiveness and the wholeness that Jesus offers in the gospel. And so in response to this, the disciples' assertion is that, yeah, it's better not to get married. If this is it, Jesus, maybe we shouldn't get married at all. And almost like they want to test you to say, well, well, no, disciples, don't go too far here. But Jesus actually says, well, in some cases you're right. In some cases it actually is better to not get married. Now, in our cultural context, when we get jaded with marriage, we think the better option is not to get married and just to live with a significant other rather than get married first. But that's, that's not what Jesus means here. What we see here is this weird word, I'll read the text here for a moment, that's this language of eunuch here. And a eunuch is someone who is celibate by, by nature or choice. Jesus says some people are born without the desire to be married. Others, singleness has been chosen for them, and still others, um, there are some that choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. This is what Jesus says in verse 11. He says, but he said to them, the disciples, not everyone can receive this saying, this saying about it's better not to get married, but only those to whom it's given. 
For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this receive it. And the big takeaway from what Jesus is saying here about singleness in the kingdom of God is that marriage is not your savior. Marriage is not your savior. And that's good news. That's, that's the best news no matter who you are this morning, whether you're single, divorced, married, remarried. Let me explain what I mean. Jesus is saying that in his kingdom, the forgiveness that he offers through his death and resurrection is our only hope. Finding the right spouse can't do that. Finding the right spouse can't satisfy your deepest desires or, or end the nagging loneliness that you experience. Even the best marriages still disappoint. They're still fraught with pain. Even the best ones. And, and even perhaps most important to say so clearly in the midst of this passage this morning is that if you're divorced, rejoice in this news because your marriage was never what made you acceptable to God. It never was. Your marriage didn't, couldn't, can't save you. It wasn't what made you justified. It wasn't what made God accept you. Yes, divorce, it violates God's design. Yes, it sends shrapnel through everyone involved, but this is the good news that divorce cannot keep you from the grace and mercy and forgiveness that Jesus, who loved you and gave himself for you, offers. And Jesus says, if you're single, marriage isn't mandatory. Being single does not make you a second-class citizen in God's kingdom or in the local church. But even as I say that, let, let me also say that isn't always the impression you get as a single person in the local church. And I've talked to many of you who are single. And the church, especially here in the Midwest, can often feel like a place for married people. But that's not the way it's supposed to be. Because here Jesus doesn't just say, oh, it's fine if you, to be single. It's, it's not great, but it's okay. No, he actually affirms the inherent goodness of singleness as does the Apostle Paul later on in 1 Corinthians. There is a goodness to it. All of us are single for a season of life. Some of us for several seasons. It doesn't make you a second-class citizen. There is an inherent goodness to it. But you also need to know what you're getting into in singleness. Because just as marriage isn't about us, isn't about us as individuals. Ultimately, it's about showing forth God's goodness and glory. So singleness is the same thing. It's not ultimately just about us, about us as individuals. It's about showing something bigger in God's goodness and glory. It isn't for you alone. And singleness isn't a permission to remain unattached, to pursue your own goals, your own agenda. Just as marriage isn't that, it is in the words of Jesus, and this is true for both marriage and singles, it's for the sake of the kingdom to tell the truth about God. Just like marriage, singleness is about something bigger. But it can be easy in a life of, of prolonged singleness to turn inward at times. Eve Tushnet, who's a celibate Christian who experiences same-sex attraction, she articulates the, the potential turning inwardness of a single life so well. I have been so challenged by her writing in so many places. She writes this. She says, for single people who live alone, it might be worth asking, are there ways I could get a little closer to offering the on-call love my married and parenting friends so often must provide? 
She says, are there times when I hold myself back from others because I'm too attached to my own freedom, the pleasure of my own company, and the security of my plans and preferences? See, whether we're married or whether we're single, we are not our own, but we are bought with a price and we exist to love God supremely and others sacrificially. You see, all this is possible only because of the hope that we have in the gospel. You see, because ultimately all human marriage is momentary. Ultimately, all human marriage is momentary because all human marriage points to the marriage of Christ and His church. Jesus will tell us later on in Matthew chapter 22 that one day when the new heavens and the earth come, all human marriage will be caught up in the one great marriage between Christ and His church uniting of heaven and earth, who will no longer be given in marriage, but will be like the angels in heaven who do not have marriage. One day in the new heavens and new earth, all of our momentary marriages will come to an end, not because they are worthless, but because the sign, (laughs) the purpose to which they pointed has come. What all this means is that regardless of how great your marriage may be now, it pales in comparison to the everlasting, unspeakable joys that await you in the new heavens and the new earth. Or if you suffered from the hurts and pains of an abusive marriage or a toxic divorce, that Christ, the true and better bridegroom, has promised to never leave you and never forsake you and will restore all that has been taken from you in this world. Or if you're single, and and students and children, I'm speaking to you at this point too, if you're single and long to be married, the longing behind your longing is actually longing for Christ himself and will not, indeed cannot, be truly satisfied in anything less. And if you're not a Christian this morning, Jesus, the true longing of each and every one of our hearts, stands ready and able to say to you, this one is mine now and forever. Will you come to the great lover of your soul who will never abuse, never condemn, never degrade, never leave you? As Pastor John Piper puts it so beautiful, and we'll close with this word so beautifully. Very soon the shadow will give way to the reality. The partial will pass into the perfect. The foretaste will lead to the banquet. The troubled path will end in paradise. A hundred candlelit evenings will come to their consummation in the marriage supper of the Lamb. And this momentary marriage will be swallowed up by life. Christ will be all and in all. And the purpose of marriage will be complete. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are grateful that you have sent Jesus as the, literally as the embodiment of your love and your pursuit and your sacrifice for us even when we wanted nothing to do with you. Thank you that you, Father, who has been in the worst bad marriage for forever with us, your people, Thank you that you've remained unwaveringly faithful to us. And that because of that, we can find hope no matter what we've been through, no matter how bad it is or how bad it was. As we celebrate communion, this covenant renewal ceremony, would we take hope and rest in your faithfulness to us always. In Jesus' name, amen.